Condi, we are in the Birmingham neighborhood of Titusville. Titusville. T- Titusville? Titusville, I yes. will take corrections yes. from you on that. Titusville. Titusville. Yes. Titusville. Six decades ago, this was the home right. of the Reverend John Wesley Rice, Jr. and his wife, Angelina. Correct. And their little girl. Condoleezza. That's exactly right. So what, what are the first memories that come back? Oh, well, we moved here from the back of the church. We had a little apartment in the back of the church. My dad, of course, when he was minister and a bachelor, that little apartment was just fine. And then my mother moved in, and then I was born. And so we were there for three years. And then the church decided to build a parsonage for my father. So mm. this little house was built by the church for my father. So this neighborhood was safe? Oh my goodness, it was completely safe. The neighbors knew each other? Neighbors knew each other. The they, moms and dads would look out for each other's absolutely, kids? Absolutely, yes. And pretty much and it everybody. it was all black? It was all black. And pretty much everybody in this neighborhood taught school. So in what way did the surrounding segregated society impinge on your life, or not at all? Well, if you were a kid, a young kid, seven, eight, nine years old, you didn't think much about it. You didn't think of it. Uh, That was, they lived over there. Uh, These parents were determined that you were not going to have limited horizons. And because we went to all black schools, all of the sense of achievement and uh, honor society and all of that was in our little community. And you, nobody said, well, it was racist to, to give kids the bad grade if they didn't. No, of course not. They weren't was, act, you weren't acting white by being we a good student. Acti- oh, my goodness, no. We, we never would have dreamed of such a thing. Um, there was no such a thing as acting black. You were just achieving, or you were playing the piano, or you were taking ballet. And all along here, that's what these kids did. It was a nice life. It, it got to be, uh, in 63, uh, more tensions. fraught and more tensions, mostly because there were bombings all over Birmingham. And I can remember coming home to the back of this house, the garage is over there, and uh, a bomb went off. And in those days, everybody knew it was a bomb. And my father started to turn the car around. We'd been visiting my grandmother. My father started to turn the car around. My mother said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the police. And she said, they probably said it. So there was that period in 63 that was very violent. And my father and his friends would collect themselves up at these, you see that's the top of a cul-de-sac there, right. and there's the top of a cul-de-sac back here, right. and they would sit with their- they take gu- the high points. they the take the high points with their guns and protect the neighborhood so that we wouldn't get white riders, night riders, through the neighborhoods, because there were white night, night riders who were trying to terrorize neighborhoods like this. I mean, you, you didn't go after poor neighborhoods. You went to, through middle-class neighborhoods. You were terrorizing them. Maybe they would drop out of this civil rights stuff. And so uh, I can remember at night, uh, my mom and I would go to bed. My father would go up and protect the, protect the neighborhood. And so my friends, they did not die in vain. God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. And history has proven over and over again that unmerited suffering is redemptive. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Mary Bush grew up in Titusville, a black neighborhood here in Birmingham. She went on to a career in business and finance. Freeman Hrabowski III grew up across the street from Mary Bush. He went on to a career in academia that culminated in three decades 
as president of the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Dr. Hrabowski retired from UMBC just last year. Condoleezza Rice grew up about six blocks from Mary and Freeman. She went on to become provost of Stanford University, national security advisor to President George W. Bush and Secretary of State. Secretary Rice now serves as director of the Hoover Institution, the public policy institution at Stanford. Mary, Freeman, Condi, welcome once again to Westminster Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, Condi's father's church in the 1960s. An observation and a question. Here's the observation. Mary, Freeman, and Condi grew up in an apartheid country. That's what the Old South was. That's what Jim Crow was. You went on to a remarkable career in business and finance. You became one of the nation's leading educators. You became, for goodness sake, Secretary <laughs> of State. That's the observation. Now here's the quotation. And this comes from Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail, composed in this town six decades ago. Quote, there are two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up of Negroes who have become so completely drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they've adjusted to segregation. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred and comes perilously close to advocating violence. Now, we've already had a conversation about that protest in 1963. What I'd like to do now is talk about the three of you and the striking way in which all three of you avoided both of those forces that Dr. King saw. No complacency at this table and no bitterness at this table either. So, family. I thought to myself as I began to prepare for this conversation that the three of you were heroic figures, and I still think so. But as I got into it, I thought there are heroes behind you. Most definitely. 1963, the year that we talked about earlier, that the year of that protest, was one century after the Emancipation Proclamation. Your people end the Civil War with nothing. Nothing. They're not allowed to be literate by and large. No property. They were the property. And by a century later, Freeman is going to say, because Freeman makes this point, that the three of you were privileged. Well, still, by a century later, you grow up in a nice neighborhood with nice homes. You go to schools that are segregated, but you get good educations. So the question is, your parents, but even going back beyond your parents, how did that happen? There is a, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me academia does, pays a lot of attention to slavery. That magnificent book, Time on the Cross, with, we now going into exactly what in slavery involved. And then we've got the civil rights struggle. But it feels to me as though there's a century of hidden black history. How much of it were you, are, were you aware of growing up? How much did you, well, tell, tell us your name. Freeman? Why are you called Freeman the Third? Right, right. Because How many generations? Several back. 
uh, I am descendant clearly of a slave master, as you might expect. The fact is that my grandfather was the first one of that generation born free. So he's the first freeman. He was the first to take that Yes, name, yes, and his grandfather was the slave master, Rabowski, uh, if you think about it. Right. All right. And the fact is that not far at all because he was born in early 1870s, right after Emancipation Proclamation, all right? And just go back two generations and you're back to slavery easily. One generation and you're back to slavery. But we talked about slavery and, and all of that period all of my life. I think in most families, you will find people talked about black history constantly and what happened to us and how people worked so hard to move through that period and all the things that happened to get the vote, for example, and to get an education and what it would take to get an education. Constantly, constantly. So, go ahead, Mary. Well, I was gonna say that last point that Freeman is making is, is very critical. Um, even coming out of slavery, our ancestors understood the importance, the criticality, the, the value of education. Um, you know, our ancestors, even though they were slaves, they had the opportunity to be close observers of what happened in the white world, the way their masters lived, and they simply knew, well, you know, this education thing is extremely important. So they, many of our ancestors, my ancestors and others, came out um, of slavery, knowing that that was one of the first things that they were going to pursue. I remember Alma Powell, who also grew up here in Birmingham, Colin Powell's, Colin Powell's wife. General Colin yes. Powell's wife, uh, telling me, I believe it was her great-grandmother, um, who was a kid during slavery, and when they were freed, her father said, now, um, you have to teach uh, the other children because she had read a few books. She had been- She had achieved a literacy. Well, a little, a little. Okay, a little. But, but she had to literally start a school and teach what she knew and then try to learn more to teach others. Yeah, I think that's a very important. So my great-grandmother was born into slavery and uh, she would have been freed when she was about 13. She was the slave master's daughter. And she had been taught to read. And so when she uh, was freed and uh, my father, my grandfather on my father's side wanted to learn to read, she taught him to read. And he became very bookish. He was the kid who wanted to learn to read. And there's a story that is just so amazing about him. He was the one who managed to go to Stillman College in Tuscaloosa with his cotton to pay his way through college. He'd asked how a colored man could go to college. And they said, well, there's a little Stillman College. So he went there. After the first year, they said, so how are you going to pay for your second year? He said, well, I'm out of cotton. They said, you're out of luck. He said, but how do those boys go to college? They said, well, they have what's called a scholarship. And if you wanted to be a Presbyterian minister, you could be 
a, you could have a scholarship too. And he said, oh yeah, that's exactly what I had in mind. So, <laughs> so that's how he became a Presbyterian minister. And that is why we are sitting here. And that's why we're sitting church. here in the church that he founded in 1944. They then built this church in 1951 and my father took over when my grandfather moved. But I just wanted to make right, one right. other point about that. Um, so in the Great Depression, my grandfather bought nine leather-bound gold-embossed books, mm. the works of Dumas, the works of Shakespeare, the works of Hugo. Mm. And my grandmother, who was trying to make ends meet, said, take them back, we can't afford them. He said, but it's only $10 a month. Can you imagine? Mm. And so he refused to take them back. On the day that I got my PhD, mm. my father gave me the, re the remaining seven of those books. So education, however they started, they, they knew somehow that this was gonna be the most important thing that they could do. And we have to remember that a lot of the historically black colleges mm -hmm. were founded out of reconstruction yes. and in the early uh, part of the, the uh, 19th century, uh, the 20th I'm trying, century. I'm, I'm just trying to get the, the, how close we are in history, how close you were in history. When you were children growing up, were there old people around who remembered people who had been born in slavery? How oh, close? yes. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, that was a common uh, thing. It was common that they knew people who had been born in slavery. I didn't know anybody who had actually been born a slave. No, but you're, you're, you're almost touching distance well, from people who did. Your grandparents were the children of slaves. So both of my grandmothers were the children of slaves. And they both heard Mr. Washington who had come to their little towns on a horse. Uh, Mr. Booker T. Booker Washington, T. Washington, they called him Mr. <clears throat> Washington, the I principal see. of Tuskegee. I and he see. told all the I people, see. send your children to school. And my grandmothers heard and were inspired by Mr. Washington, and, and they were determined to send their children, my dad and mother, to college in the late 20s, you see, if you can imagine that history. But don't, let's not forget this. Everybody knew slavery was horrible horrible, brutal, let's not, let's not we, cover it. We were it all taught that. It yes. was, oh, we were taught, we were it was taught that. awful. We were, taught we were not considered human. It's so important. And let's put that in perspective today when people try to put rose-colored glasses around it and not teach that history. Mm -hmm. That's how far we've gone backwards. It's mm -hmm. so important to say that, that we must find ways just to teach the truth. The truth, not to make children bitter, but to have the perspective of where we've come from and what we must understand. It is, I will say, you mentioned bitterness, though. Yeah. Um, bitterness is a waste of time. That's right. It's, right. No, it's, it's not a about waste of. It's That's a waste exactly of energy. Right. It's a waste of time. Yes. It's a waste of brain cells. Yes. It's a waste of blood pressure. Yeah. And uh, I actually don't uh, find very uh, appealing 19-year-olds yeah. who are more bitter about slavery yeah. than I am. I think we can be right. stronger. So I, I, stronger. I find that we've maybe yeah. overdone it a little yeah. bit yeah. Yeah. because what we're not actually yeah. teaching yeah. what it was. We need, to teach, we need to teach the history so we can understand that people could have gone through hell and come out of it stronger in a constructive way right. to do what it takes to move to the next level. But I want to comment on bitterness also because Condi's putting her finger right on something. So I have many people across the country, whites mostly, who have said, well, from the way you grew up in Birmingham, why are you not bitter? And the way I put it is that bitterness would be a burden on me. 
It doesn't hurt anybody but me because it takes away. Bull Connor is long gone. Yeah, well, well it's not just him. that, but it would take away from, as Condi said, the energy, mm -hmm. the energy that I am putting into moving forward and accomplishing things one, in life. One, one more question on family. <clears throat> one of the things that slavery did was shatter the shatter black us. family, just shattered it. And yet all three of you come, come from families where you, I, I'm reading between the lines now and correct me if I'm mistaken, but it was important to your parents that they were married yes. and that they and that they stayed together for yeah. the, so, well, so how did this, this is a great act. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about acquiring education, acquiring enough property to buy books and to have a house, but also there is an act of reconstruction of the family. In, in Is, some ways, in some ways, maybe they valued it more because they knew that history. Yeah. I did have one ancestor. Her name was Zena. She was mm -hmm. on my father's <clears throat> side, who had five children by different slave owners, mm -hmm. and somehow managed to keep them together. She, she was determined that her children would stay together. Uh, it pains me now when I look at the destruction of the family unit among uh, so many black uh, people who, for whatever reason, uh, find themselves in circumstances where the family is no longer the unit. Mm -hmm. well, many would say social policies. This is when I talk about yeah. voting for people who look at policies that will support people in building families. They have social mm -hmm. policies that make it easier not that, to be married mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. over the last few decades. That's right. Mm -hmm. that we need to look at social policies that will encourage people to support each other in those ways. School. All three of you talk about school. Mm -hmm. Two of you were raised, you were raised by an educator. Your dad? No. Yeah, yeah he, he left teaching because he, he could make more to, money. To go to the steel mill, yeah. but he was an educator. Yeah, All right. Educator, yeah. So, and he actually taught, he taught men in, at the lunch break, he would work, he still was an educator, getting them ready to go in the evening in QE to work in, with the GED in my, in my mother's class. So, yeah. so here's, here's, to me, this is a puzzle. Yeah. Again, I, you may not have noticed this, but I'm white, so yeah. I, I, there are a few things that are puzzling to me right. here that might not be puzzling to you. You know, you protest a lot about being white. <laughs> <laughs> Brown versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision calling for the desegregation of schools yeah. is 1954. Right. We've been talking earlier about 1963. Now all of you were in all black schools. Right. That's the first point. Right. Here's the second point. As far as I can tell listening to you, you throve in school. You had good teachers. Now, I don't know that all your teachers yes. were good, yes. but you've named figures who yes. all these yes. years later you remember. You remember yes. a certain guidance counselor called yes. Reverend Rice. Yes. You remember Dr. Bell, the principal. Yes. Uh, how, can this, how can it be that nine years after the Supreme Court says desegregate your schools, Alabama simply has not done so, and how can it be that the all black schools you attended we're good. Well, they just ignored it. I mean, Alabama, they, just, Alabama ignored just ignored it, and they kept ignoring it. You know, I remember when I moved to, to Tuscaloosa, mm -hmm. uh, my dad was dean of students at Stillman College, and my mom uh, was teaching in the now Tuscaloosa public schools. Right. And uh, finally, something called freedom of choice came along, so parents got to choose. 
whether their, where their kids went to school. This was a way that if some black kid wanted to go to a white school, oh, okay, but white parents won't have to send their children to the... Oh, I see. That yes, was, so, right. but the funny thing was that it, it finally came down to they sent one teacher to the white school, that was supposed to be my mother, and one white teacher to the black school. Right. But my mother at the last minute didn't go and some other teacher did, but we got this poor woman. She was the only white teacher in the school she was clearly not the class of the, the you know, the best teacher. And they didn't all the, send you their best. No, they, and all the kids knew it. And this poor woman, they gave her such a hard time, you know, because she actually just wasn't very smart. So all that I'm saying is Alabama did everything possible to get around Brown versus the Board of Education, and for a while succeeded in doing it. Well, you, you and I were, t you, you mentioned something when, this was earlier today actually, that had never crossed my mind that your teachers were strict because, at least in part, nobody was ever going to accuse them of racism. No, no, They were the black, opposite. and you quite were black, yeah. and those students were going to sit up and behave and do their reading and do their homework. Is that correct? That's right. And, and in, in fact, I hear the voice of uh, a certain president for whom I worked about the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yes, yes, yes. And there's actually nothing worse than when uh, you have a, a teacher, maybe a white teacher, that looks at a black kid and says, well, I know that the circumstances are difficult, and so I, I, that student really can't succeed. Soft bigotry of low expectations. We didn't have to worry about that. No, we didn't. And now, low expectations, I mean, it's like it's magnified because you have kids that are finishing elementary school and halfway through high school, and they don't know how to count. Um, someone that I know who happens to be from uh, South America uh, was asking her granddaughter very recently, who's in high school, um, if, if you give um, a clerk $100 and you're paying $64.99 for something, how much money are you supposed to get back? And the granddaughter didn't know. So people, uh, teachers, Basically schools, the school yeah. systems are allowing people to pass when, when they, you know, don't, uh, they are, they're not eligible to really. So the expectation at, at home was high. You did your homework. Your parents set that expectation. Yes. The expectation in the neighborhood, all the kids was were expected. And the expectation, I mean, there was just no. No. It there wouldn't was... cross your mind to slack. No. And were you a star because you turned out to be a brainiac at a very I was very age? fortunate to have well-educated parents, and I was a precocious kid, all right? And, but and what I mean kids, is, and these, and these teachers, were, teachers yeah, spotted let you? Let me just say this. Me, and we were all in the honors classes, and so I'm just going to say it again. These two were geniuses, all right? So, so the top kids did really well, really well. Because but, teachers picked them out. No, no, we had some great teachers. We, we had, had some great, great teachers. teachers. We had recognized great teachers. the talent. We had some good teachers. Right. We really had some good teachers. And I did really well, and my parents would give me extra work, so I was moving fast and all of that. But I'm going to say something about American education. If you look at the, at the, the, the most recent international tests in math, we are far below most in, industrialized nations right now. It just came out in the last week or two. Look at, 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 the, at the exam results. We are, American kids of all races mm -hmm. are far below. I think it's, uh, um, it's Singapore that's five grades ahead of that's America. Five grades that's ahead. a travesty grades. for the country. Right. So, so it's not right. just yeah. Birmingham. I'm saying today, we have right. Singapore scores right. are five 
grades ahead. Now, we think we're all that. We're that good. I'm, as a mathematician, I'm saying we are well all below. Right. All right, let's start there. I'll come, I'll come back to that. Right. So, so okay. what I'm saying is that, and what I'm saying to you is that those of us who were really hardworking and fortunate enough to be in homes where parents reinforced the right things, did well. We right. did well. Now yeah. I want to come to another element yeah. of your lives. It's yeah. clear or where you met a teacher who did. And you had a teacher. Right, because there were a lot of kids yeah. in our orbit yeah. who did very, very well, who parent, whose parents were not who were educators. Not. Yeah, yeah. And who were not, but they had the right attitude and the, and the parents, and, but the parents supported them. That's right. You know what I, I mean? And then you had little kids and the parents supported them while the kid was sure. reading under the, under the sheet with this, with this. <laughs> 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 Burning down Church. the house. Yes. Church. Yes, yes, Church. Yes, Let me quote yes. once again. Letter from Birmingham Jail. Yes. Actually, I'm not going to quote. I just made notes on yes. this as I was reading it myself. Yeah. Dr. King cites Jesus, yeah. St. Paul, yeah. St. Augustine, yeah. Martin Luther, yeah. Paul Tillich, a, a then contemporary. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Uh, sure. It, is, it is a document steeped in the Bible. Yes. And steeped in explicitly Christian morality. Right, right. He said, even as St. Paul felt compelled to go preach the gospel, I feel compelled to go speak of freedom. I mean, it is just drenched in, and what's, what's ama amazing to me at this remove of all these years is that he was writing it as a public document. He wanted it to be read. Yes. And he, he felt his audience would get these, these references that, he was writing for people who, who, who were as steeped as he was. So I want to ask you, did you read the Bible at home? What is the role of church? I know the church played a big part in your lives, but was that also part of your, was it, to what extent was it social? To what extent were you getting a religious and moral education? You're reading the Bible? To what extent, honestly, did you really believe it? Did you develop a faith that has stayed with you? I believed it all. And the faith has stayed with me all of my life. And it has taken me through some very terrible, tough, uh, challenging times when I felt my, my life, um, you know, was um, almost being threatened uh, in, a, in, in many ways. Not a physical way, but it was threatened. My life and everything that I had built. So my faith was very important. Church was a huge part of our lives. We've talked yeah. about Reverend Rice and the youth fellowship group yeah. here. Yeah. So he did that partly so that the kids in the neighborhood yeah. would have a social outlet. And our mothers, some of our mothers chaperoned, I did, uh, my mother did as well. Um, at uh, my church, Sixth Avenue, just a few you, blocks. That was your church also? Yeah. For, yeah. Right. Uh, we also had the youth fellowship group. I was a member of the choir, first the children's choir and the youth choir. So we were at church many days a week. Reverend Porter, Freeman's and my minister, um, would, whenever we got our report cards, he wanted us to stop by his office that Sunday morning and show him the report cards. And then what he would do is in the church service, you know, the main 11 a.m. service, and if there was a nine, he would say, well, some of our students got all A's. So Mary Kate Bush, stand up. Freeman Robowski, stand up. Cheryl McCarthy, stand up. So we got that. And did you get a standing ovation? Uh, really? Yeah. So the whole congregation yeah. loved oh, yeah. standing oh. ovation. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, and you know, Cheryl, in addition to the finesse yeah. thing, she was number two at IMF. 
Big deal. Big deal. <laughs> yes. She was number two at the International Monetary Fund. She, <laughs> she went on to do that. But what I'm saying is that even the church reinforced education, oh, yeah. but it was oh, also yeah. about God and it was about spirituality and it was about doing the right and the moral thing. You know what they would do that was so broad? It was that it wasn't the kind of traditional way of saying that Christianity was the only way, they actually talked about other types of religions. My father actually uh, had befriended a rabbi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. he said to the rabbi, well, you don't use your synagogue on Sunday, so how about I bring my kids yeah, over so they can learn, learn something, yeah. you know? And so <laughs> he did, he believed in that. But, that was, but, yeah. but I grew up very much steeped in Christianity, a total believer. But my dad was a theologian. He had a master's degree in divinity. And so he allowed me to question. We had debates. When I was uh, four, we had our first debate because he gave his sermon right here. And I came home and I said, Daddy, you mispronounced that man's name the whole time. His name is Job. And my father, <laughs> my father didn't shut me down. He just said, no, no, it's Job. And, and, and we would over time, we would get more into the kind of uh, the, the meat of Christianity. But um, yes, I was a believer and still am. But they Can also I? took us on field trips yeah, to yes, see trips. universities, yeah. Yeah. Um, to see Reverend King, the father's church yeah. in Atlanta, yeah. to climb Stone Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So, Things where, where white people were too, though, that, that blacks were not accustomed to going to and to get us accustomed to feeling we were supposed to be there. That's supposed and to how be there. To, how to Especially act. colleges. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but oh, this is the, the Yeah, yeah. But, but, but he taught me to, to be comfortable debating with him. He was an intellectual. We're talking about yes. Dr. Rice. Reverend Rice. Rice. Oh, yeah. Reverend Rice. He, he, and he enjoyed my disagreeing with him. He would get yes. that smile that she has. <laughs> yes. He would get yes. that smile that he has. That. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he loved it when I could make a good point. Mm. And he would, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So did, <laughs> yeah, he really encouraged it. He really I, did, yeah. I began this by saying that one of the doctor, one of the forces, one of the dangerous forces Dr. King identified was bitterness. Yeah, yeah. Did, did the, did the Christian ideal of forgiveness help deal with the bitterness? Or did, I, it, or did I just, it just not come? I just don't remember bitterness. You just bitterness. don't remember that. Right. No, I was you younger. Remember the existence I was younger. I don't remember feeling bitter. I, 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 I do remember very well uh, feeling sadness or yes. sorrow. Yes. But, yes. but not You were not younger bitterness. than that. I was younger. I was younger. I have a story yeah. that I dealt with, with uh, both with him and with my pastor on, and my mother, Bull Connor spat on me. I've told that story. This, when I was the, the during the protest, the, yeah, he said, what do you want, little nigger? And I said, we want to kneel and pray for our freedom. And he spat on me and threw me into the police wagon. I remember that. And, uh, and I, I, talked, I talked with different people about it because was, I was very angry. Treated me like I was dirt. And I remember talking to, and, and Reverend Rice talked to me about that, and so did uh, Dr. Bell. And they, their point was, you gotta let that go in different ways. Mm -hmm. I finally let it go when my mother called me, um, when he died, and she was when crying. Bull when Bull Connor died, she called me and she was crying. And I said, why would you cry for that man? And she said, because 
he was somebody's child. Mm -hmm. well, and it. she said, <laughs> his mother never taught him how to love. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I was crying. I said, Mom, why you do me like that? <laughs> and all of a sudden, all that hatred just left. Yeah. All that bitterness just left. And it was such a relief. I thought about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. I thought about that. And, and that's, that was that. All yeah. right. So, yeah. so <clears throat> the United States, the oh. United States of America, the country. Yeah. 1963, students march. Bull Connor treats them badly. You've just told us one story. What kind of a country treats people that way? And we have now... Uh, the 1619 Project in the New York Times and prominent authors saying that the country was corrupt from the beginning, it's always been fundamentally racist, that, the, that this country is fundamentally, basically, inherently flawed. That's in the air today. What were you taught, how, how were you taught to view this country? To love it. You were. Absolutely. Even though it had enslaved your ancestors, even though you were forced to live in a segregated neighborhood. Yes, but, you know, somehow we knew. There, look, there are forces of evil and there are forces of good. And, you know, Freeman and I were talking about this earlier today. Love conquers all. Love conquers all. Um, you know, the Star-Spangled Banner, America the Beautiful. These are songs that are still near and dear to me. I love this country. I always loved this country. That doesn't mean that I didn't know that things had to change in order for me to get where I wanted to be. Um, so I, I just never bore any ill will towards my country. So I represented this country. Yes. And uh, every time I got off a plane that said the United States of America, I felt enormous pride. Absolutely. And I felt honored. Did it mean that this country was by any means perfect? No. But I got to see every other human experiment called a country, pretty much in every part of the world, mm -hmm. pretty much all of them. There's none that's done it as well. That's right. And that's what we forget. I remember when I, was, uh, when I met the president of Brazil, uh, Lula, and uh, he, he somehow came to like me, and we were talking, and he said, we have a race problem in Brazil. And if you remember, Brazil had always said it didn't have a race problem. Mm. Of course, the field hands were all African, and the hotel staff was all mulatto, and the government was all Portuguese, but they didn't have a race problem. Mm. And he said, um, how did you do it? Tell me about affirmative action. Tell me about what you did. This is all through a translator. He didn't mm -hmm. speak English. And when he appointed the first Afro-Brazilian minister in 2007, he had his foreign minister, Amorin, call me and say, the president would like you to come and stand with him mm. and talk about racial justice in Salvador Bahia, which is the Afro-Brazilian homeland. Mm. And I went and I saw this church that had been built over a hundred years because the slaves who built it had to do it in their free time. Mm. 
And I saw these people in the streets, and I thought, oh, you know, we, we did not very well, but boy, when you look at what everybody else did, and that the United States of America would be able to deliver to the descendants of slaves rights through the Constitution that once called our ancestors three-fifths of a man, mm -hmm. that's an extraordinary story. Uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't think that blacks and whites would ever be able to live together. He thought it would be impossible. We did. And so human, remember that human institutions are not perfect. And this one is not perfect. But I've seen a lot worse. So, you know, there are two or three things I want to say. First of all, people have a way of talking about the black community or they talk about the American people. And there's no such thing. We all have different thoughts, different ways of thinking about things. I do, too, leave in my country. I do go around the world as I talk about STEM and America, right? Uh, and I do believe in this country. At the same time, I'm proud of the woman who did the work for the 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes some of the language she may use, I may not use. How, how about the lack right. of historical accuracy? And, and we can talk about that, but I am very proud of her. And we can, these three our family can disagree, yeah. all right? Mm -hmm. We can disagree with things. But this is what I would the say. The three of you, you, you get immunity from each other after you've, after you've been friends for half well, a century. Well, we love each other. We love each other. We can disagree wow. on things. We love But let me just say this, though. But uh, one, when one says that there are flaws in our country, mm -hmm. well, in any country, there are flaws. Of course, because human being, beings are flawed. Mm. Yeah. And of course, there's some pain we feel because of how we have been treated. Yes, that is the truth. But at the same time, we have to look at where we go from here and what we can do now. And we have to think about what's next. What do we do now? Mm -hmm. And we have to think about how we talk about our history and the challenge we face is that people end up using language to not hear each other mm -hmm. somehow on both sides. I'm interested in understanding how we hear the different perspectives so we move to the next level. That's the question for me. So, so let me ask you about the next level. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a few statistics here, and they're all distressing. Yeah. All three of you grew up in stable homes. The out-of-wedlock birth rate among African-Americans is now 70%. The proportion of African-Americans who grow to the age of 18 in a household with two married parents is under 40%. All three of you grew up in a safe neighborhood. I won't even go into the statistics. All you have to do is think about the shootings that took place last month alone in black neighborhoods in Chicago, just to name one, one place. You attended good schools. This is an amazing thing, segregated schools, but they were good schools. Louisiana, this is, I couldn't find figures for Alabama, but in Louisiana, this year, black students were five times more likely than white students to attend public schools that scored a D or an F on the state's school performance ranking metrics. Church, you just talked about church. It was central to your lives. According to a 2021 poll, church attendance among black millennials has fallen uh, below, fallen to 50%. On and on this goes. And by the way, white kids tend to attend better schools 
but church attendance is way down among white kids. And I'm very struck that it was 1965 when Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote his report on the disintegration of the urban black family. And he was worried about an out of wedlock birth rate of 25%. Among whites in this country, it's over 30%. Now, we're not gonna solve these problems at a table, at this table, but I'm just so struck that what you had, you've called your, the three of you privileged, and you know what? I think you were. Yeah, because I would really like to know, with your setting up those, yeah. the statistics for poor white families. Yes. They'd be bad. It'd be yes. really They'd be so, bad. Because, you know, it's, it, and it goes They'd back be to bad. structural issues in our society. So, so the it, question, it, it, how, the do you, how do you offer, how do this, you do it? How do we, you offer what you have? to look at what this you have. widening gap between those who have and those who don't, Peter. The fact is that the, the middle class is shrinking in our society. All so many Nobel laureates from different perspectives will tell you that the middle class has shrunk increasingly in mm -hmm. decades. And, and unfortunately, unfortunately, um, whether you're talking about blacks or whites, you've got so many blacks and whites who are in that bottom group. And what you see, when you look at the statistics of the children who cannot read, right. black and white poor, yep. and I, who are I, not in I families, what, it's I guess such a challenge. I guess what I, I'll tell you the way it seems yes, to me, yes. and then you yes. know more about this than I do. But it seems to me that the answers aren't complicated. We know family, decent schools, yeah. church attendance, but it's so hard it's, to put it's, together. It's hard. That's what I mean. It's hard now, and we're at a different place. But the interesting thing is, to Freeman's point, race is not the only factor That's here. Right. In fact, may, maybe race isn't the primary factor. Right. It race will race will race will exacerbate. Mm -hmm. So if you are poor and black, <laughs> it's a really bad witch's mm -hmm. brew. Uh, and those neighborhoods with the crime and the like are likely to be poor and black. But we go back to something we've all talked about, education, education, education. The biggest problem that I see is that poor kids, uh, rural poor kids as well as urban poor kids, are trapped in really bad schools. And how can we be a country that lets that happen? Now, I happen to believe that one of the answers is school choice. Mm -hmm. Um, I want parents to have choices. Now, I've heard, well, a choice system will destroy the public schools. We have a choice system. If you are of means, you will move to a district where the schools are good and the houses are expensive. Mm -hmm. If you're really of means, you'll send your kid to a private school. So who doesn't have a choice? Right. Poor the parents. Poor yeah. And so I want to give those poor parents, I'm all for I'm a believer in public education. I want to fix the public schools, but I don't want to sacrifice three more generations of poor kids while we're doing it. And see, I want to build those public schools. I want to make them much stronger. But, but the word we haven't used today that I want to bring on the table is racism. Let me, let me just put it that. I, the National Academies did a study looking at this issue of racism in our society, and they say it's as strong as ever. Let me just give you one area. Really? What, which group? What, they did. They did a study. I'd, I'd love to see those studies, and I'm, I'm a sure. social scientist. And I'd like I'm to saying, see the studies. Let me tell you this. Let me just say this. Um, 
What group do you think in America right now has had a decline, the greatest decline in people in higher education, ethnically or, I mean, demographically right now? The greatest decline, decline in participation in higher education right now. Which group in American higher education has had the largest decline in what, participating in higher males? education? White males. White males. males. Yeah. White males. Okay. White males. Now, now, okay, white males. All right. And mm -hmm. I start with that as mm -hmm. I talk about issues of diversity. And why do I say that? Um, the white males are down, okay? Now, black males and Latino males are down too, but what happens to the white males? The white males are seen to be going towards extremist groups, yeah. all right? What the study showed was that the black and Latino males, though, end up moving to prison. And the number one reason is they end up, because of racism, for a lot of reasons, they don't have lawyers, and judges for the same crimes put them in prison. Well, they end up, look, we have, dis, we do have disproportionate, disproportionate impacts, yep. disproportionate impacts. Yep. And some of that is structural. You look at healthcare, yep. for instance, and, yep. and health yep. outcomes. Yep. But I'm always very careful about the uh, racism, okay. all right? Okay. And the reason I said I want to see Would that study. Would you like to see discriminate? No, Would no. you like the word discrimination I, No, no, better? I, I prefer the word discrimination. Okay. Because, Except they are black. Uh, no, because they're because I'd like to know the mm -hmm. circumstances in which they find themselves. Okay. okay. Because if you're really going to do this, mm -hmm. you got to have a really good definition of what constitutes racism. Okay. Okay. Go you have look to. At you have National to. Academy no, no, study. no. Well, the National Academy has its problems, but that's another matter. Okay. Okay. But uh, I, I am an academic like you. Okay. All right. Okay. And I don't always believe everything that I read all from right. the National all Academy. Right. Shall we but, just go out right. for a drink yeah. and yes. we'll come back? I love it. Yeah. We'll come back. This is what's good. Yeah. But this is good though. This is good because you see, black people even with PhDs yeah. and academics can disagree. can disagree. When people think all black people think alike. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> but, but I just want to say one final thing about this. Yeah. Uh, I always think that we need a better definition of what constitutes racism mm. as opposed to what constitutes a disparate impact of race, okay. right? All right? Okay, because that. racism yeah. would assume that that judge yeah. looks at that person and says, you're black, I'm sending you to jail, right? Okay. okay. I want to know if that's the case. Okay. I want to know if it's kind of the neighborhood you live in, and so you encounter the police more okay. than okay. the white but guy. But you would who agree it is structural discrimination. It's, it's at least. structural impact of race uh -huh. that I would like to, know. and that's something we should understand more okay. and understand better. Another one is we know that uh, in clinical trials, for mm -hmm, instance, mm -hmm. uh, blacks are underrepresented. Yep. And so yep. you get and disparate health. impacts mm -hmm. on health. Health disparities. And health disparities. Mm -hmm. So this is a very complex web, web. but when we, didn't, when we just say it's racism, mm -hmm. we don't go to the second, third, fourth order question and what, and about what's happening. Let Mary something say something, let Mary say something, yes. Okay, so um, I think all of this is, is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the school choice, mm -hmm. the fixing the public right. schools, it's mm -hmm. all the, whether it's racism, discrimination, mm -hmm. or whatever. But what I see is that our country isn't valuing education, period, mm -hmm. like it should be. Because if we've got um, schools, public schools, or schools in poor neighborhoods where that are not performing, that says for some reason we are not valuing education. And what we're also not valuing 
is, and not understanding, is that there is talent everywhere. Mm. And you want to develop yes. that talent. You want to nurture it. You want to nurture it in inner city Washington and inner city Birmingham as much as you want to mm. uh, uh, value it in Chevy Chase and mm. Mountain Brook and Owings Mills and, and out at Stanford. Mm -hmm. That is part of the problem. We have, we have, we have discounted how important education is. What the fixes are, yeah, there's a lot of debate and mm -hmm, there's lots mm -hmm, of things mm -hmm. that can be done, but uh, I think that's well, the problem. There's one question, one question. But you see, when you ask the question, which people ask, whether we, whatever the term we use, whether it's structural discrimination, structural challenges, right? When the question is asked, as you ask it, as many do, mm -hmm. it seems like it is inherently a black people's problem rather than a problem involving people without resources, whether they are white or black, when the fact is disproportionately large numbers of people of color, of poor people, right, are having these same problems mm -hmm. when you think about well, those Poor people jail. are having yeah. these problems. Yeah, yeah. But, but let me yeah. just say something, yes. because there's yes. a word, there are two words I never use, yes. all right? And it's yes. going to have one of the words you use, yes. white privilege, yes. right? Yes. Why do I not use that? Yes. Because, uh, go ahead. really, go ahead. that unemployed coal miner right. thinks that they've got more privilege than us, right? Right, 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 right. right. So yes. uh, we have to be very careful yes. with explanations that are about race, okay. right? I have never wanted to say we have a class problem in yes. America because I always thought of class as something that was immutable. Huh. Um, yeah. I, I was, you know, I studied Marx, yeah. right? So I, yeah. the class struggle. Yes. And you were born into a class and you stayed in a class. Huh. And I didn't think of America as that way. I, huh. you, there was upward mobility and my kids may be better off than I am. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I'm beginning to think we have a class problem huh. because people are getting trapped where they were. It was always a sense that you were not a prisoner of the circumstances of your birth. And increasingly, too many kids are, a, yep. are prisoners of their birth. And so that's what we have to do something about. Right. Last question. Let me close here with a passage from my new favorite doctor, document, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. Quote, this is a longish quotation, but you'll see why I'm reading it. This is Dr. King. I received a letter this morning from a white brother in Texas which said, now he's quoting the letter he received. All Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but is it possible that you are in too great of a religious hurry? It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. Now Dr. King replies, all that is said here grows out of a tragic misconception of time. It is the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively." Close quote. That's Dr. King writing in this town six decades ago. We've talked about your backgrounds. We've also talked about what all three of you have accomplished. You could not have done that without using time well. All three of you could only have accomplished what you've accomplished by making constructive use of time. 
So think again, two of you are professional educators, you work a lot with kids. Think of a student. What do you tell a student? How do you tell a student to use time? And I'm answer in any way you'd like, how to use the hours of a day or how to year, use the years of a life. But how do you tell a student to use time? Freeman? I'm gonna do it very differently, but I'll make the point. I like this conversation as we think about time because we are agreeing even to disagree in this short time without taking it personally. In our country, we start disagreeing and we stop listening to each other through tweets, through something on different stations, and we're not, we're not even on the same page. What you've seen with us is that we don't have to be of the same opinion about things, but we're hearing different perspectives in this short period and we're adding to the richness of the conversation. And we don't finish the conversation, but we, we take away from this time different perspectives to keep thinking about. And the thinking will continue. There's also something pretty remarkable about friendships that have lasted more than six decades now. Yes, yes. Yeah. And will continue through life. Mary, time. Praise God. Time. You know, I... Um, I'm a big believer in um, everything in life can teach you something. Um, I love learning. I love learning new things. And what I tell people is um, you have to see what you can glean from every situation you're in, whether it's a challenge, uh, or whether it's something, you know, that uh, promotes you and supports you. What have you learned? So part of the way that you, or a big part of the way that you use time is that you learn, you observe, as Freeman said, you listen. And that's, uh, I have to reiterate what he said. That's what we're missing so much of in this country. That's what we're missing on college campuses right now. Mm. You know, people take attitudes uh, or, or positions and they don't listen to each other. Therefore, they don't engage with each other. Therefore, they don't know how to negotiate with each other or with anybody else in the world. So use it to learn, to observe, and to um, figure out uh, so that you gain wisdom that way. Kindly mm. yeah. time. So my take is a little little different, actually. I want to tell my students, you have more time than you think. Really? Uh, their time has sped up so much. Mm -hmm. uh, they think if they have Googled it, they've researched it. Uh, they, everything is a fast food news story. Everything is a tweet. TikTok tells you how to think about the the long, long history of the Middle East. <laughs> and I want to say to them sometimes, life unfolds in many, many, many chapters. 
And you don't have to know what you're going to be doing at 45 years old or 50 years old. You may not even know what you're going to be doing, doing at 30 years old. They come to me and they say, how do, how do I do what you did? And they may be Secretary of State. And I say, well, you actually start as a failed piano major. <laughs> right? And so life is going to give you many challenges and many chapters and many opportunities. And don't always be looking ahead. Try to really be present with where you are at that time and milk it for everything that it is, for those conversations, for that reading, for that last uh, one more second just to stop and, and look uh, when you're out in another country and to hear what people are saying. Take your time. Condoleezza Rice, Freeman Hrabowski, Mary Bush, thank you. Thank now, you. <laughs> I'm going to ask something that the, you, the three of you may think is crazy, but I was so struck reading the notes. You were in choir. Do, do you feel the urge to sing? It just feels as though. It feels as though. No, we don't. No, we don't. It feels as though this space. This is not a black group. <laughs> it feels as though this space should hear your voices again after all these years. No? All right. <laughs> Thank that you. Oh, I should do, excuse me. She would do it. Yeah, she would. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you sing a solo. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. Quiet down, quiet down. <laughs> For the Hoover Institution and Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you. Now go back to your raucous yeah. lives. <laughs>